Man, it is, uh, it's so good to be with you guys uh, this morning. If uh, this is your first time here, or maybe you're new uh, to Fellowship Nashville, so am I. Uh, my name's Ryan. I've been here about a month and a half now, and uh, I serve as pastor of teaching and discipleship. And today I get the privilege of uh, looking with you at God's Word. And as we get started, I'm reminded of just the heaviness of the passage that we're going to be looking at today, and yet how incredibly important and timely I think it is in the world that we live in. You know, as we get started, I was uh, reminded this week as I was looking at this passage of a movie that I remember watching with my dad when I was a kid called Weekend at Bernie's. Uh, if you have not yet seen this movie, don't waste the two hours, okay? It's, it's, uh, it's not that great. But the premise of the movie is absolutely hilarious. And so basically, what the storyline of this movie is these two guys go with their boss uh, on, on a vacation to a tropical island, and while they're there, the boss dies. And they're afraid that they're going to be framed for the boss, boss's death. So here's what they do. They tie his arms to their arms, they tie his legs to their legs, and they're literally parading this guy through the town as if he's alive. And, and the hilarious thing about the movie is everybody's interacting with Bernie as if he's alive, but the joke, of course, is that he's really dead. And you know, the reality is, I think sometimes we can walk in this journey of faith and we adapt a kind of weekend at Bernie's kind of posture. You know, we, fl- we flail an arm of doing the occasional good deed and we figure, oh, oh, well, that's what it means to follow Jesus. Or over here, we say the right words, especially when we're around people at church. And yet, as soon as the door's closed, we become an entirely different person. And if we're not careful, what can very easily happen is that we come into a kind of life where we go through the motions of following Jesus, but our heart and our obedience is far from him. You know, the reality is we're not the first to face this kind of practice. In fact, if you go all the way back to the book of Revelation, we learn of a church that had a reputation for being alive, but was really dead. A church that mastered the art of going through the motions and missed everything about the life that Jesus had for them. So today I want to introduce you, uh, if you're not familiar with them, to the church of Sardis found in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And uh, so if you, the words will be up on the screen. If you have a Bible, um, please open with me there. If you'd like, we also have Bibles in the back that are available to you if you need one. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one, take it home. It's yours as a gift because uh, we want to encourage you to be in God's Word. And so as we read, uh, let me invite you to stand and follow along as we read God's Word together. And here's what we're told. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who have the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains And is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before the angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. 
you know, friends, as we continue on looking at this passage together, I'm quickly reminded that we are in the midst of this series uh, called Seven Letters to Seven Churches. And as we've been making our way through this series, what we've been suggesting to you is that at the core of the book of Revelation is not just the story of these cosmic beasts and, you know, uh, four-headed dragons and all the different pieces that we often associate with the book of Revelation. But the heartbeat of the book of Revelation is that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation is really all about saying who Jesus is and how Jesus stands above it all. And I think that is equally important as we come to this letter. Because what we're being reminded of is though we go through the motions, though we can put on the front of following Jesus, we might deceive the world around us. We might even deceive ourselves. But Jesus sees to the heart. In fact, what I think we're being invited to in this passage is a very powerful and important warning. And it would simply be this. What I want to suggest to you is the key idea of our message today. And it's beware the sedative of drifting in spiritual autopilot. Beware the sedative of drifting in spiritual autopilot. And what Jesus is going to do is he speaks to the church in Sardis. Is he's going to give us a powerful invitation to a way of living that looks squarely at the love and the life that he has for us. And so as we begin, I think we have to begin simply uh, by looking at this idea of spiritual autopilot and the sedating effect that it can have in our lives. If you look here in verse 1, we're told, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write. You know, we know quite a bit about the town of Sardis. Sardis lie in that same roadmap of churches that we've been seeing as we've been making our way through the series, located about 35 miles east of Ephesus. It was a city that was renowned for its opulence and affluence, the center of the garment trade within the region. It was known for its high quality goods and was seen as a center of economic affluence and power within the region. But what we also learned from this letter is that in that process, something happened where this church at Sardis lost its influence. It, it, it lost its power and its distinctiveness as the bride of Christ within that community. And it's why Jesus gives um, a very painful rebuke to the church. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive but you're dead. Wow. Jesus doesn't say, I know your reputation and you're scooting by. You're getting, you know, a, a 60 out of 100. It's not too bad. Jesus says, you're dead. You're dead. Come back to life. In fact, what's so striking about the church in Sardis is that each of the letters that are written to the churches, there is some kind of uh, commendation, there is some kind of affirmation that is made to the church. And this is one of the unique churches where there is none of that. Only rebuke, only challenge, only invitation. You know, I love the way George Eldon Ladd puts it in his description of Sardis, when he says, the church in Sardis is a picture of nominal Christianity, outwardly prosperous with the externals of religious activity, but devoid of spiritual life and power. In other words, they were a church that drifted into spiritual autopilot. They were a church that knew how to do all the right things, and yet all the while their heart 
was far from God. You know, as I've wrestled both in my own life and journey, one of the questions that I often ask is, what does this spiritual autopilot look like? How do we know when we begin to drift into this place? And I think one of the most powerful descriptions of the power and the warning of this kind of autopilot is actually found in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 58. If you're familiar with Isaiah 58, we often uh, credit that chapter as being a chapter that speaks to the reality of fasting. And yet in the first three verses, there is something that goes on that is such a powerful invitation that it's worthy of us diving in to a little bit of measure. And so I want to I wanna kind of chase a little rabbit trail for a second because I think this is so incredibly important. If you have your Bible, open up with me to Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 to 3. And here is the distinction that God speaks to the people. He says, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments, they delight to draw near to God. Then the people responded, verse 3, why have we fasted and you don't see it? We have humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Can we talk about for a second just the distinction of perspectives in this passage? The people come before God and they're like, God, look, we're fasting. We're fasting. We We are doing good spiritual work here. And notice what God says to them. Shout to them like a trumpet. I mean, where's the communication breakdown in this process? And did you notice verse 2? Yet they seek me daily, and they delight to know my ways. And then these two words that haunt me. As if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. In other words, this was a group of people who who knew what the right thing should have been. They knew that they should be a people who were seeking God. They knew that they were a people that should be delighting in our ways. But when the moment came that what they knew was to translate into acts of obedience and care and impact both in the worship of Jesus and in the following of those around them, they fell flat. You see, here's what I want to suggest to you at the heart of what spiritual autopilot is really all about. Spiritual autopilot at the core is really about what I would call as ifing the gospel. Finding the words of Jesus important enough to hear, but not important enough to obey. And I don't know about you, but when I hear that and was confronted with that in my own journey this week, ouch. I think one of the very real realities is, especially for those of us that have been around the church for a while, is we know what the right answer should be. But do the right answers lead us to righteousness? Does the right answer lead us to a life of radical obedience? Or do we drift, figuring that simply knowing the right answer is good enough? And I think it invites us to a sober evaluation of asking the question, where are we guilty of as ifing God? 
I mean, are we at the place where we come to church because we figure we can check that box and then go back to living life our way the other six days of the week? Do we put on the front of church that we have it all together? And yet as soon as the door is closed, addictions, pornography, and the like hold our attention on a daily basis. Friends, the scary reality about Jesus is the God who stands above it all is that he sees the heart. He sees the heart. And the image and the power of the life that we are called to is to be conformed to the image and the character of Christ. It is the image of a life of surrender, obedience, and abandon. And that radically shapes our mission as the church. This week, you know, I came across these words from Warren Wearsby, uh, a pastor uh, in the mid-50s, Uh, of the last century, and he writes these words that I think are so powerful and haunting to us today. And he says this, that all of the church's man-made programs can never bring life any more than a circus can resurrect a corpse. The church was born when the Spirit of God descended on the day of Pentecost, and its life comes from the Spirit. When the Spirit is grieved, the church begins to lose its life and power. When sin is confessed and church members get right with God and and with one another, then the Spirit infuses new life. Revival. Wow. Friends, I think it is so important for us to recognize that what brings spiritual transformation in the life of a church is not a good preacher. It's not the expansiveness or the depth of, of programs that we offer. It's not even the spirituality of the leaders within that church. But it is as each person in this body commit themselves to following Christ with a single-minded devotion and abandon that we see the power and the work of God move in a mighty way amongst our lives. And Jesus is saying to this church, I know your works. I know you're doing a few good things, but I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. You're going through the motions. You're doing a few good things, but recognize it's really about the heart. And it's here then that we quickly discover that Jesus within this passage gives to this church the antidote to this spiritual autopilot. Did you notice in verse 2 that Jesus calls the church to wake up? Wake up, literally in the Greek, it's come alive, pay attention, get on your guard, stay alert. It's an invitation to intentionality. You know, as the parent of two small boys, let me tell you, I know the power of these words, wake up, especially around school time. You know, we start with that initial, come on, come on, honey, get out of bed. And they're a little droggy. And finally, we get to that 10 minutes before school starts. And it's like, get up. I don't want you to miss out on what school has ahead for you. And I think sometimes we can hear the words of Jesus here in kind of this condemning way, almost like we tack on the words, you idiot, to the end of it. Wake up, you idiot. And I think we would miss the heart of Jesus here. More and more, I am convinced that fear, shame, and guilt are not the voice of the kingdom. But what Jesus is doing here is that with much tenderness and care, he's saying, I don't want you to miss out on the life that I have for you. I don't want you to miss out from the danger of this spiritual autopilot. 
To do that, we're going to have to live intentionally. One of the things that I think is particularly fascinating in the history of Sardis is the recognition that this issue of falling asleep on the job would have held particular importance to this city. Twice in its history, both in 549 BC and in 218 BC, this city was overcome as the sentries who were stationed on the wall literally fell asleep. And as a result, foreign armies came in and overrode the city. Jesus is saying, don't let the same dynamic that led to the spiritual downfall of the physical city lead to the same kind of downfall both in your own life and within the bride of Christ. It's a recognition that if we would come to find this life, it begins in a willingness to acknowledge and to be intentional with the tendencies of the human heart to fall asleep. You know, more and more as I walk this journey of faith, I become convinced that the journey of transformation begins when we acknowledge that we're lost. That's why I love the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, when he says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If I was going to put Ryan's paraphrase on it, it would sound something like this. Blessed are you when you know how jacked up you are. Because now you can finally learn what grace is really all about. What begins to happen in the journey of transformation is that when we finally acknowledge that we have fallen asleep, that we have drifted into spiritual autopilot, that we experience the grace and the mercy of God who is constantly, patiently, graciously inviting us to wake up. You know, the reality is we can talk about this at a, at a big corporate and cosmic level, but the reality is, if we're really honest, the nature of the human condition is to fall asleep. The nature of the human condition is to drift in spiritual autopilot. And I wonder for each of us, what is that place in your life? Because I believe with tenderness and care, Jesus is inviting us, wake up, wake up. To help us do that, Jesus is going to show us a second thing that we're invited to do. He's going to remind us that we're invited to live faithfully. I love in verse three, he says that they're to remember what they've received and heard. In other words, what he's saying, remember again the gospel. Friends, again and again, I am convinced that one of the most greatest dangers facing the church is what I would call the danger of familiarity. We come into a place where we talk about the realities of the presence of Jesus in our midst. We talk about the reality of the mission that we're called to, to make disciples of all nations. And we've heard it so long and so much that we lose the wonder of the life and the invitation to which we're called and what Jesus is saying through John to the church is remember again the gift of the gospel that you've been given. That God drew us into this life, not because of anything we did, not because we were worthy, not because we were good enough, but out of the tenderness of his mercy and his grace. And not only did he forgive our sins, he raised us with Christ. He seated us with the heavenly places. And now when God looks at us, he doesn't see our brokenness and failures. He sees the beauty and the perfection of the resurrected Christ. And friends, my guess is for many of us in this room, that is not new news. 
But when was the last time we sat back and marveled at the love and the grace and the compassion that we're shown? Could it be that one of the reasons why we drift in spiritual autopilot is we throw away the compass of what God's word has said is true about us? We let the poles and the magnets of all the other things in this life hold our hearts captive. And all the while, we miss the true north of the fact that Christ has loved us and drawn us into this life. He has placed his spirit within his bride. And again, I am reminded of the words of a church planter I heard a number of years ago when he said that the kingdom of God is coming and there's nothing anybody can do about it. Can we know that? But is that how we live? And perhaps the journey of transformation begins in marveling again at the mystery of the gospel. Here's the third instruction that Jesus gives to the church. It's a reminder that we're supposed to live obediently. Verse 3 goes on to tell the church that they are to keep what they've learned. In other words, live your life in such a way that it reflects the power of the gospel. Years ago, I was walking with a dear friend, um, and we were having a conversation, and he said to me, you know, Ryan, I, I see so many guys that are splinter Christians. And I'm like, splinter Christian? What in the world is that? And he kind of gets this grin on his face, and then I knew I was in trouble. He says, well, you know what happens when you sit on the fence, right? You get a splinter in your rear end. <laughs> And he said, splinter Christians are people that live with one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. And they stay there as if that was an acceptable alternative in this life of faith. You know, I think one of the great dangers that we can get into in this life of faith is, again, that we can hear the words of Jesus as important to hear but not actually important enough to do anything about. We hear the call to love our neighbor, to forgive, to live sacrificially, to live differently, to live and to walk by the Spirit of God at work within the church, and yet life gets in the way. And all the while, the sedating slumber of, well, that's good enough, lulls us to sleep and we forget that we are nothing less than the bride of Christ. We're the bride of Christ. I can't tell you how many times I've said to Jesus, what in the world were you thinking? But the reality is God has sent us into this broken world to make his love and mercy known. And it means finally that we're going to have to live decisively. We're going to have to act and to repent. You know, this word to repent is probably my favorite word in all of the Greek language. It's a hybrid of two words, actually. It's meta and noia, which means to change one's mind. Repentance isn't about feeling sorry. Repentance isn't about... um, Just some general sense of sorrow, but it is a willingness to redefine reality as we know it in light of something that we've seen. 
in light of the call that this church had been given, in light of... um, in light of the call that Jesus had given them to be his representative in Sardis, they had allowed the, the commingling and the realities of the pull of the culture around them to lead them into a place where they missed out on the call and the mission that they had as the bride of Christ. You know, an honest question. Would the world look at our lives and say there's something different? There's something distinctive. I don't know what it is. I can't quite put my finger on it, but man. Man, something, someone is unique and working in their life. And every day, what it will call for to live in that way is a million lines in the sand. Not where I, by my effort, earn being obedient to Jesus, but rather I allow the grace that is within me to unpack and flourish within. It's why I love the writings by um, someone that I've deeply come to admire, a man by the name of Dallas Willard. And one of the words that he writes is that the gospel is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. The gospel is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Now let me pause here. If you're like me, man, this is heavy. <laughs> this is heavy. And this week, I, I, I found myself just um, confronted by the ways in which I see my own pride, my own tendency to drift in these ways, my own tendencies to look to self-focus, and I began to ask myself, in, in Jesus, how do we find freedom? How, what is the practical tools that you've given us in order to help us find this life? And can I suggest to you two things? Number one is community. As I look back over my journey, the people that have helped me stay awake the most have been godly brothers and sisters who have walked with me on the journey of faith. And in the moments I couldn't see the truth of who Jesus was, lovingly came alongside and said, wake up. I would never have made it through the journey of losing Cammie had it not been for the blessing of godly brothers and sisters who said, Ryan, hold on. In the darkness, he's still good. He's still faithful. You can still trust him. And yet, in the midst of that, I was invited into a second reality. I had to remember again what was true. I had to be intentional in taking what I knew God's word said. And as John Piper puts it, preaching it to myself and reminding myself of the ultimate realities of who he is. Friends, I believe that one of Satan's greatest strategies against the church in America today is to lull us into spiritual autopilot. It is to lead us into a place where we simply go through the motions because we don't face the external persecutions that we see in other countries around the world, just like the church in Sardis. And the invitation and the call to the church in America today will be be to live with an alertness, an awareness, and an anchor in the call and the mission to what we've been given. Because Jesus is going to go on to remind us just how urgent the issue really is. He says in verse 3, 
that there are very real consequences, that if they don't wake up, he will come like a thief, and they won't know what hour he'll come against us. By the way, I don't think this is Jesus necessarily beating on the church as much as it's simply a statement of reality. If you are living in autopilot, you're really living on an artificial life support, and sooner or later, it will give out. What is hidden in the darkness will be seen in the light. And as a result of that, though we wiggle our arms like Bernie, going through the motions can never change the fact that if we've not experienced true transformation in Christ, we're really dead. And here's the thing. I can't see anybody's heart. The only person that can see the heart and the integrity of a person is Jesus himself. And maybe you're here today and Jesus is saying, wake up. Wake up. Maybe you're here today and you would say, I've never made that decision to follow Christ as the master of my life. And today... I hear that pull, wake up. Will you listen? Oh, friends, do we realize what Jesus is offering us? I mean, did you notice what Jesus says is true of those who walk through this journey? He encourages us to keep our eyes on the prize, just as some in Sardis had. In verse 4, he commends those in Sardis who had not soiled their garments, those who lived with such a single-minded integrity that they seek to follow Jesus in every way. In the ancient world, it was believed that to go into the temple of Artemis or to Zeus with soiled garments would be an insult to the deity. And I believe what Jesus is saying here is that the call to follow him is a call to single-minded devotion and surrender. You might say, well, Ryan, I don't do it perfectly. You're right, welcome to the club. None of us do. But is the desire and the trajectory of our heart to follow in single-minded abandon? Because here's what Jesus says. To these who lived in white garments... To those who did not show them, God will grant them the grace to walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So much irony here. What makes them worthy is not their ability to do all the right things. What makes them worthy is their recognition of just how desperately they need God. And how that led them to a life of staying with him. Of being obedient of living a life for his kingdom. Now, at the same time, uh, people read this warning that, um, where Jesus speaks about he won't blot uh, their name out of the book of life. Is, is Jesus saying here that if you somehow don't reach some uh, perfect standard that he's going to abandon you? No, I don't think that's the heart of God. I think what Jesus is saying here is this is simply a statement of reality. If our hearts are not living in single-minded surrender and obedience to him, does it betray the fact that we've missed out on what this life of the kingdom is really all about? Does it betray the fact that we've missed out that the call to follow Jesus is exactly that? It is a call to follow him. Not because we earn that love, 
not because we can do anything in our power to be in right relationship with him, but because he, in his mercy and grace, has drawn us to know and love him more, and nothing is going to separate us from that love. But friends, did you catch the ultimate promise that's given in this text? This is so rich. To the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. As I was reading this this week, what I found myself gripped with is Jesus may the love of your kingdom so fill my heart that your name is always on my lips and my name is always on yours. That at the end of my days, what people will say is not, oh man, I remember Ryan, he was a good guy. But rather the testimony is, Ryan who? <laughs> that by your mercy and grace, Jesus, what people saw was not me or anything that I would accomplish, but the goodness and the mercy of God and of Jesus. And today, what would it look like if Jesus were to lead us into a place where in whatever the places of our hearts are, we took his word seriously and we heard the invitation to wake up. I know I need it today. In fact, I I would simply ask two questions as we come to the end of this passage. The, The first is simply this, where is Jesus inviting you to wake up? Is there some area of your life where Jesus is saying, hey, you're drifting in this area? And not out of a voice of guilt or shame, but rather of invitation. I want so much more for you. Will you follow? Will you listen? And then secondly, if community and intentionality are the great tools that God uses to lead us in the life of faith, What is one way that I can press into community and intentionality? You know, it's ironic to me that today we come to the celebration of what we call the Lord's table or communion. And uh, here at Fellowship, we believe that this table is open to all those who have placed their faith in Christ. And hopefully you came in, you noticed on your seat um, a little cup with some bread. If you need a gluten-free option, uh, it's there in the back. Feel free to grab those now if that would be helpful to you. But can I tell you something? One of the things that I often notice in the practice of communion is that we say, take your bread, take your juice, go to your seat, and you take. And that was anything but an early church way of looking at this table. Because to be in this table meant to be in community. It meant to be to recognize that we are one body in Christ for his kingdom. And friends, if we are going to wake up, one of the greatest gifts that we will need are the gifts of one another in this room. So here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Uh, Something a little different. I'm going to invite you to cluster into small groups. And that's how we're going to take communion today. So find a group of about eight to ten people. If you see someone who's not a part of the group, please encourage them to um, be a part of that. But just encourage you now, across the aisles, around the room, get into groups of and don't get hung up on the numbers, groups of uh, 8 to 10, and just uh, cluster up.
Awesome. Guys, can I tell you, this is just, this is cool. This is cool to see you guys like this. In fact, I want to invite you to do something. I want you to really look around the circle. We interact with people day by day in a church service, but I'm reminded of the words of C.S. Lewis who says, you'll never meet a mere mortal. Each person you interact with bears the presence of God. We need one another in this fight. In fact, what I want to do is I want to give a minute. Maybe, I will do that at the end. I'm going to change things up a little bit. So friends, we come to the celebration of this table. And here's what we're told, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. Let me invite you to open up to hold the little wafer. He took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's given for you. Friends, this is how far Jesus would go to draw us into this life. He would lay down his life for us on the cross. And I want to encourage you now to invite one person within your group to pray for this bread. So somebody just pray out as you feel like. In the same way, we're told that Jesus took a cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. You know, this cup basically is the declaration that, as the Apostle Paul said, nothing's going to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Life can't, death can't, things present, things in the future, nothing in all of creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the cup of hope. It's a cup of joy. And again, I'm going to invite you to take in groups, but as we do, uh, Brett's going to lead us in a song. And at the end of this first song, um, hold on to the cup until then, and we'll take together.